0: Hi and welcome to Veg Out, brought to you by the Toronto Vegetarian Association aka the TVA. We come to you virtually from our homes and we are heard on CJRU 1280 AM, the Scope Ryerson's campus and community station. My name is Swetha and I'm a vegan and a volunteer with the TVA. Our mission is to inspire people to choose a healthier, greener, and more compassionate lifestyle through plant-based eating. I am joined today by my co-host Ana de Castro and we also have a guest on. Our guest today is Nithal Jethala. He is a plant-based nutrition economics researcher based in Toronto. He's a lifelong vegetarian turned vegan. Nizal has been volunteering with the TVA for 25 years and is currently the president of the board of directors. The board is working actively with the staff to help strengthen and broaden the organization's impact and research. Nizal has also recently founded Plant-Based Economics, which is an NGO focused on evaluating plant-based nutrition economics and policies in Canada. His focus right now is on evaluating the impacts of the population transitioning towards the new Canadian food guide and ultimately a plant-based diet. He is also a part of the research team, along with Dr. Tushar Mehta and Nicholas Carter, at Plant-Based Data, a one-stop shop for anyone looking for academic research in all things plant-based. Nital also sits on the board of directors at the Vegetarian Food Bank. I'm so excited for today's show because we actually have two board members with us today. So we're going to get all the TVA secrets. This is my, my hope. Am I, am I right, Ana and Nital?
1: uh i don't know if i signed <laughs> up for that all of them
2: <laughs> i can just laugh at that i don't know i don't think i know any secrets but yeah we'll see. i don't
1: know if we're supposed to be holding secrets
0: <laughs> no okay listen listen we promise okay so me and all the listeners of the podcast we promise we will keep your secrets okay so you can feel free to just <laughs> drop them in throughout this episode
1: okay thanks okay. for that that so. really comforts me <laughs>
0: We're going to start off, as we usually do when we have a guest, we're going to start off with your veg story. So Nital, why don't you go ahead and tell us how you became vegan?
1: Sure. Okay. Well, I was raised as an ethical vegetarian for religious reasons. I guess you couldn't see me air quote there, but it happened. So as a Hindu, the concept of ahimsa, which means non-violence, is pretty important. It's a prominent philosophy in classic Hindu texts like the Mahabharata or Ramayan. And it's one of the five tenets of the first branch of Ashtang Yoga. I kind of always saw him as underpinning the golden rule, which is to treat others as you want to be treated. Uh, And that's something my parents took great care in instilling in me. So from an early age, uh, I guess I was set on this path. But that said, I only slowly appreciated the different areas in which vegetarianism doesn't actually live up to this precept, or at least for me. And I kind of had a weird path to veganism, to be honest, because it was leather that I first gave up, which was in high school. And then during my undergrad, I learned about rennet, so that was next to go. But I was still pretty hooked on cow's milk until my mid-20s. I only truly learned about the horrors of dairy when I first watched Gary Urofsky's talk. He has a line in that talk, there's more suffering in a glass of milk than in a steak, which immediately haunted me. And then eggs were the last to go after I learned about the billions of baby male chicks that die every year because of the egg industry. And I actually saw some of that evidence firsthand when I worked at Agriculture Canada. I was still only 90% vegan though at that point because I would cave for baked goods here or there. And so I think it was Philip Boland's talk um, that was like the nail in the coffin for me when I finally went 100% vegan about seven years ago. So it was this like 20-year evolution that took me a long time, which is why I guess I can sympathize with all the people who want to go vegan overnight, but feel like they can't flip that switch, because uh, the dissonance can be tricky.
0: Yeah, but it's, it's good to hear these stories of people, you know, gradually going vegan, because it gives us hope for uh, those that are trying to transition, um, as well as those we're seeing struggling to transition. So it's, uh, it's nice to hear. One thing that you mentioned, and I know, uh, you know, I come from a somewhat similar background, like my my parents were Hindu, or my mom was Hindu, and uh, she uh, she was vegetarian for that reason, but we were not raised vegetarian. But the leather, you, you know, you pointed this out that it was in your 20s that you gave up leather, and I find that so odd that we're so much about, uh, in Hinduism, about cows and sacred cows, but then we wear leather. Like, is that not so odd? It's such a disconnect, like you said before.
1: Yeah, it puzzled me a lot.
0: And then how did you get involved with the TVA?
1: Oh, that's a good question. I, it was my dad was pretty active. My dad's a doctor, and, and he went like he he's very much plant based. Like he didn't go vegan necessarily because I remember not riding around in his leather interior car. I was upset that he had he had that, but he was um yeah he was very active. He give I think he actually spoke at the 50th gala, and so the food fest was obviously huge. That was my first in though was I was volunteering at the Veg Food Fest next to Peter McQueen, who I like to always call the living legend. And it kind of between those two streams, that was my inroad, I guess. So about twenty five years ago was when I first started volunteering. And then whenever I've been in Toronto, it's just gotten increasingly
0: active. Wow, that's a that's a very long time. And you're president now. Look at that. You worked your way from a regular volunteer all the way up to president of the board.
1: Look at that. Accomplished the dream.
0: Yes. Um, So speaking of highly placed people within the TVA organization, what is going on with the executive director? So we all saw the posting go out, you know, a new uh, ED is being hired. Can you tell us a little bit about that process?
1: Yeah, sure. Well, the process itself was actually pretty exciting because there's over 50 candidates who applied. And after many an interview, there's a multi-stage process. We're excited to announce that our selection, Kimberly D'Oliveira, I hope that I pronounced that correctly. She can correct me later. Well, she'll be the new executive director for the TVA starting on Monday. So a little bit about Kimberly, that she comes to us after working three years at Toronto's Center for Social Innovation, CSI, as their manager of business development and strategic partnerships. And from my understanding, she learned a lot there about what it takes to be successful in the non not-for-profit sector. So she's bringing a wealth of relevant experience and is herself a passionate and intersectional vegan. I believe she went vegan around the same time as me, actually, 2014. Uh, for her, is during her MBA, where she specialized in circular economy. So she has a very strong environmental background as well. And she also comes to us with glowing recommendations from a range of established leaders uh, in the city. And we're really looking forward to her navigating these kind of uncharted waters that we're in. Because while COVID's had this massive impact on TVA and its revenue and ability to carry out traditional activities it's also presented us with an opportunity now to focus on how we can sustain the organization beyond those traditional activities that currently aren't available to us so that when they do come back to us we're all the more we're all the more stronger so uh, yeah we're excited i think kimberly's the right person to be at the helm of the tva ship and i'm really looking forward to working with her
0: yeah i'm so excited to see what you're going to do for uh veg fest this year because i really enjoyed it last year And um, I'm hoping that the, you know, all that wonderful programming will be back and there'll be more food components.
1: We're still not sure. Like, I know the program review committee, um, Mark Simmons has been working with them to undergo a lot of analysis in advance. I will say that we definitely have more time working in our favor this year because last year was a scramble. And we only, because of all the uncertainty on whether or not we could do in person, it was only around June and July that we really got started. So... It should. we should definitely have a much stronger uh, runway up this year and be able to do some cool stuff.
0: Fingers crossed.
1: Fingers crossed.
0: Okay, so uh, one of the things that's really exciting that the TVA is working on is um, C40. And I would like you to tell us a little bit about this and tell us TVA's involvement in this. Um, so go ahead, take it away.
1: Okay, and this is pretty exciting for me. So stop me if I go on a little too long here. But it, so it all started for me two years ago when my eldest niece Karina, who was eight at the time and in grade two as her class president, she was working with an environmental teacher there. Not so much a teacher. The best sense I have is that he's kind of like Hagrid from Harry Potter, but a smaller, smaller version. But uh, anyways, they worked together, surveyed 300 kids in her junior school on whether or not they'd be interested in starting a meatless Monday there, and this was totally unbeknownst to any of us in the family. So, and within a week, 80 students had responded favorably and the school agreed to start the uh, start Meatless Monday. But unfortunately, COVID put a pause on the development of those plans. So anyways, her outreach, um, you know, obviously greatly warmed my heart. And it also got me thinking about how we could get Meatless Monday going, not just in more schools in Toronto, well, first in more schools, but also in just generally in more public spaces of all kinds. And it dawned on me that, Mayor Tory had announced this climate change emergency. You guys might remember this. It was in October 2019, I believe. And it was a result of the cities being a participant or a member in the C40 network. So C40 is a group of 96 cities, of which Toronto is one, that are dedicated to having their greenhouse gas emissions by half, by 2030. This network represents over 700 million people and a quarter of the world's economy. And in fact, 14 of these cities signed a document the Good Food Cities Declaration, that specifically targets meat reduction and in increasing plant-based foods in in their cities, amongst other goals. So it was around, uh, it was after that that I saw a really good opportunity for TVA to get involved. We actually kind of had it on a platter for us because the city was already committed. And there's a lot of research that I've learned from um, from my personal research, which we can talk about later, around how effective nudge strategies are. And Nudges. Um, a famous book from 2006, um, whose authors actually won the Nobel Prize in economics that year. And it's all about how you can kind of, there sometimes is a socially optimal objective outcome if you just make things the default strategy or if you offer people the chance to be nudged in certain directions. So, for example, there's studies showing that increasing the proportion of plant-based meals in universities and schools uh, has led to an increase in plant-based meal sales anywhere from 15 to 80%. And that's without seeing a dip in sales overall. People just choose it more when it's offered to them. So I started with connecting with Mayor Tory's office to see what the city has planned in the area of plant-based food promotion and implementation. And as I waited to hear back on that meeting over the winter break, I started working with fellow board member Mark Simmons to create a database of organizations like ours in all C40 cities. Because I was starting to think, if we're doing it here, like maybe other people are looking at it. And if they're not, then we can chat about it. So together in our research, we connected with the International Vegetarian Union, who's a pro-vegan group that's even older than us, believe it or not. And they, off the bat, expressed interest in partnering with us on the initiative, which was pretty exciting. So with them, we then met with the Meatless Monday folks who worked through the John Hopkins School of Public Health. And that's when we realized that Meatless Monday actually has a global platform, like online, and it's pretty cool. We asked them to create a group for us that, you know, anybody interested that we hear back from can join. While that happened, and in partnership with the IVU, we started to contact all the heads of those organizations, and we started to hear back already. So far, we've gotten favorable responses from Montreal Vegetarian Association, the Italian Vegetarian Association, the Indian Vegan Society, the European Vegetarian Association, as well as some other groups. And the rep- responses are still coming in. So the next step here is for everyone um, globally to join this uh, Meatless Monday global platform so we can properly connect, discuss best practices. And then Mark and I are working on a resource list right now to share with this group as it gets off the ground. And then in the meantime, we worked, uh, we started to work within the city. So Mark and I met with a senior advisor in Tori's office whose portfolio includes the energy and environment files. She provided us with points of contact with senior staff in the city and energy and environment, as well as Toronto Public Health, which oversees the Toronto Food Policy Council, which makes a lot of decisions around food in the city. And so while we're connecting with folks in all these places now, or starting to, we've also started strategizing on how we can start to approach the six school boards in the GTA, as well as some of the 26 city councillors in the city who might be interested in championing this cause or is, at least seeing more plant-based foods and meals throughout the city. So Mark and I will be proposing to the board this month. They're already aware, but we're looking to create a new TVA committee, a new board committee to deal with all this work that's now building up pretty quickly that we're gonna split into two streams, local and global. And Mark will oversee the Toronto side of things while I oversee the global and co-chair this committee. It's pretty exciting. It's still early, there's a lot to be done. But um, it is helpful that we have the IBU as a partner because Marley Winkler, who's the current chair there, she has her own story about getting Meatless Mondays adopted in Sao Paulo, Brazil, um, years ago. But that continues today, where over two million vegan meals are now served to students every year there. And, and Meatless Mondays is just a starting point. We'd like to see far wider adoption of plant-based foods in the city, including one day in hospitals. So. I actually would like to take this chance to give a shout out to if anybody's interested in getting involved, I totally encourage you to reach out to Mark or I because we'll be selecting people and seeing who's interested for this global veg network committee once it's officially set up.
0: That all sounds so exciting. I'm so excited about the fact that it's not just locally that the TV is working you know, you're working globally and uh, building these connections. And then one of the things that you said about, you know, nudging, people. I remember we had talked about this book, uh, you and I called How to Create a Vegan World. And I think in that one, he was talking about having veganism kind of as like a default option. So you go on a plane, and the default meal is vegan. And you can change it if you want, you just need to call beforehand, kind of like how we have to call right now and change our meat to vegan. And how much that can get people to just, you know, adopt more vegan meals throughout their day is just having the default be vegan. And if it's not, they have to go out of their way to change it. And, yeah, just nudging people. And so it's it's really cool that we're using these things in real life to get people to make these um, these changes.
1: Yeah, it, it is super interesting. There's Some of the studies are even focused on one thing. So, for example, fruit in schools. If you just put fruit where, like, the chips were on the way out um, to the cashier, kids are buying, like, three to four times as much fruit. Um, Just from seeing it, there, being
2: nudged towards it. Mm -hmm. I think one of the great things of the the C40 initiative is that we're making all these connections with different organizations, both locally and globally. And I've been talking to a lot of longtime TVA members, and they were telling me stories about um, these partnerships they've had with these organizations, which I think we've sort of lost over the years. And now we're rebuilding all of this, which I think a joint um, effort goes a lot longer, a lot further than doing, trying to do this on our own. And I think as we reach out more to, to different organizations where we are going to grow and our, our mission is going to grow. Yeah. I get really excited when you talk about C40 and I'm looking forward to working on it at some point.
1: Yeah. It's uh, you know, it's also, also interesting to your point Anna, is that the IBU has experience with us and they remember Peter And they have a lot of fond memories of the TVA. So they themselves have been heartwarmed that we're back in connection with one another. That's
0: great. I'd imagine that some of these things are easier during COVID because, you know, before it's like, oh, but they're all the way in that other country or that other city over there. But now if I'm in a different country or just, you know, in the house next door, you can't really tell the difference because we're just all communicating online, you know? So it feels like in some ways the community... Uh, is, has gotten smaller or it, it, not smaller, but closer because of this new way that we're all communicating now.
1: Yeah, exactly. That was a big impetus between um, for being able to shift a lot broader on the programming last year for veg food fest is once that occurred to me, it was like oh, we can pretty much ask anybody in the world right now who wouldn't otherwise usually be able to fly in for the food fest. It's definitely a silver lining.
0: Mm-hmm. So are, are there any other organizations that you're collaborating with?
1: Yeah, that's a great question because I left that out. But part of the outreach is also, it doesn't just have to be vegan organizations, right? So we've got a list now of um, any environmental organization uh, in the city that uh, is interested or focused on climate change to both raise awareness on the impact of food choices if they're not, and then if they are, to to also bring them to the table. And it's, it's pretty interesting that uh, some people I was having a discussion this week with a gentleman, Mike Farley, who's an educator who's now got about 40 different educators that he's collaborating with on how to have more presentations and discuss this topic on plant-based options in in schools and universities. And uh, yes, just yesterday, I connected with the um, founder of Reimagine Agriculture, who are trying to really spread the word about um, cellular agriculture, quote unquote, clean meat, if you will. And they do a lot of presentations themselves and both of them express a lot of interest in what we're doing or planning on doing and would like to join so i can only imagine that the uh, collaboration and network is going to grow it also um, speaks to just how many different people and organizations are looking at the reality of how many canadians are out there and people writ large who want to at least acknowledge or if not participate in in reducing their meat consumption because uh i don't know if you guys are familiar but a nielsen poll last year showed that 77 percent of canadians acknowledge the importance of meat reduction even though only only about 10 percent of the population identifies as vegan or vegetarian so there's a huge number of people who are interested and um as you can imagine the shifts you know not just in terms of for the animal lives saved but for the economy and for healthcare, care etc would be massive
0: whenever i listen to you talk news i'm always like what does this guy have like an encyclopedia memorized? How does he know everything? And like everything is like right there. The rest of us are like, what was that article that we read last year that said that thing that we don't really remember? And you're just like (laughs) spitting out facts, right, left, center. And everything is clear as day in your mind. So we all are a little bit jelly of your ability to do that.
1: I can definitely, well, thank you. I can definitely test the fact that things are not clear as day in my mind, but uh, this has been a long time coming. In 2005 was when I first really, the wheel started to turn for me for all the research that we can get into, I guess now. Um, and so yeah, I've just been sitting on the sidelines waiting for, you know, over a decade. <laughs> it's, it's been building up. But yeah, the, I've been increasingly active in nutrition economics and plant-based specifically from around the time I worked at Agriculture Canada, which was, I was working in strategic policy in Agriculture Canada. And before my job even properly started, they asked me to look into to do an analysis on what would happen if Canadians ate by the food guide, like the old one of the old food guides, not so good ones. And I was kind of curious, like, first of all, that the analysis hadn't been done, but also like what would happen? And as I did that, it really got me thinking about what would happen if Canadians went plant based. And so that became that's when the wheels really started to turn. I even started a PhD in this, um, in food and agriculture resource economics, like wealth. But uh, when my advisor left, there was really no interest in anybody else taking on this research. Um, Guelph had a large focus on dairy at the time, so I kind of fell out of it. But then the new food guide came out, 2018, that totally brought me back into the fold.
0: I and just that's... want to say something. Go ahead. You, uh, talking about the food guide, um, do you know Vegan Dad, the the guy that has the food blog, uh, the recipe blog? This Actually, was, um... I don't. Okay, so oh look, I know something he doesn't. <laughs> So he had a a posting, this was quite a few years back, with the old food guide, and uh, he was saying that, you know, if you look at my diet and if you look at the Canadian food guide, I actually probably follow this much more than, you know, the the average meat eater does, and so my diet is not that foreign, it's not that weird, you can't really call it unhealthy either, just going by the food guide, um, it's, you know, pretty much in alignment with that.
1: Hmm, that is interesting, now I'm going to have to check him out.
0: Well, that was that was really the only nutrition thing that he had. I'm not sure that most of his recipes are nutritious, though they are very yummy. His seitan recipes are so good. If you have not made a good batch of seitan, if you're struggling with that, he's the one that really got me into that. And um, yes, so go check him out, Vegan Dad.
1: I will. I've actually I've I'm I've, um, working with somebody right now who's a vegan gardener and chef, and we're working on a a database, but this is totally separate, like a personal project, but on, on all like a essential database where you can search for plant-based recipes, depending on your need, right? Whether or not it's for families or fitness or health, because surprisingly that, that kind of database um, or resource doesn't really exist out there from what I can see. Mm-hmm. But yeah, no. if you thought, um, thought there was a lot of stats or information that I had, then I am might, I might get a little bit too crazy here talking about all the nutrition economics research. But I feel like it's interesting.
0: It definitely is. I just don't know where you put all of it. Like, as you can tell by his bio, you're involved in like pretty much every major animal rights organization in this city. And on top of that, you have, oh, you have so many things going on. I don't understand. (laughs) I'm, (laughs) I'm overwhelmed just thinking about the amount of stuff that you're involved in and you're actually involved in it. So I, I just can't understand where you get, on top of all that, the room to store all these facts in your head.
1: Uh, I guess it's just from working on a lot of research, you write a lot of it down. So after you do it a few times, it starts to come in. But there, I can't tell you how much I miss. It's just such a big area. So there's interesting stuff all over the place. And then you start to tie it together.
0: Okay, so go ahead. Put it all together for us.
1: Okay. <laughs> I can try that. That's still a big Before, ask. But... Now, go. So plant-based economics, That's this. the start of it was, as I told you, the wheel starting to turn with um, looking at the food, the old food guide. Then this food guide changed. So I started to wonder, right, what would happen if Canadians ate by this new food guide? And then a, more importantly for me, what would happen if we all went fully plant-based? Hence me starting this NGO, plant-based economics, which people can find at plantbasedeconomics.com. And in the meantime, one of the other things that's been dovetailing is um, compiling research for plant based data. So, these two things have been really helpful to put together some of the bigger picture. So, overall, kind of where it got really interesting for me was just knowing agricultural policy in the country because I spent a few years working there in strategic policy at Agriculture Canada. And I saw really quickly um, there's a concept of elasticity in economics, right? And basically, it's the responsiveness of change. There's price elasticity, there's demand elasticity, but overall, all you need to know is, as you can kind of guess, that demand for food can be incredibly elastic, which means, you know, you can change my mind about satan, for example, over the course of a few minutes, like you pretty much just did, and we all, I'll change my eating habits, right, my, my preferences and what I demand. But meanwhile, the supply of foods, animal foods especially, is pretty inelastic. And so while we can switch our preferences overnight for what we eat, it takes dairy or beef farms years to change. And that transition can be really costly on the economy because as you guys are very well familiar, uh, we don't always transition in those areas very um, nimbly. So the general approach here is to tie together the savings we'd experience if everybody did go fully plant-based by looking at different sectors. So healthcare, the environment, resources, even trade. Um, The proposal is working towards basically Saying this um, putting some of the savings that we would experience, particularly in healthcare, um, where we could use them to help better transition. So healthcare is a big one, because as you guys all know, um, a vegan diet isn't necessarily healthy, but for those who choose to eat increasingly whole foods, it is by far and far away much, much healthier. So in Canada, we spend about 12% of our GDP on healthcare, which works out to about $7,000 a person. And 70% of that's paid with for public funds. So we all have an interest in the population getting healthier, especially given that the population is aging. And for anybody interested, about a quarter of that spending is on hospitals, 15% is on drugs, 15% is on doctors. And um, it's not just about animal versus um, plant-based foods. Uh, about just under half of the calories, 47% of calories, I think, that uh, Canadians eat come from ultra-processed food. and cancer and heart disease are the top two leading causes of death, um, which has been the case for decades. So about 18 million people die a year from heart disease and just under 10 million people die from cancer. And to put that in perspective, um, death from homicide is under 500,000 a year globally. So there's already been some people who've researched what would happen, like the burden of this disease is great. And so just from heart disease and diet, type 2 diabetes alone, uh, The Kane Institute of Health Information estimated that we, uh, it costs about 35 billion, those diseases alone cost us about $35 billion a year. And my dad, being a plant based doctor for a very, very long time, I saw as a teenager people reversing and really um, radically uh, improving their health just from these shifts in diet and like diet and lifestyle and heart disease, not needing that surgery, that stent or the bypass. And it, it's pretty special, right? When you see people make that change on an individual level, that that that's where the interest kind of came because we we could save a ton. We're spending a ton on healthcare. We could save a ton just from even operationalizing the food guide we have now, getting people more towards it. And it kind of leads into all these other questions, right? So globally, look, meat still continues to rise. I know a lot of vegans um, don't always want to acknowledge this, but the meat sector is just under a trillion dollars globally and um, it's still growing. So because when people have a rise in income, they tend to buy animal products when they get out from extreme poverty and start to move up um, the ladder. But the positive note for uh, vegans out there and anybody interested is that while the global meat sector is growing about it is, is growing, it's at just 4%. So it's growing but the plant-based market meanwhile, which is way smaller, it's just about just over 12 billion dollars has predicted growth at over 15% for over the next six years, which is huge. So like, and we're seeing this growth already, like since 2012, the plant-based market in Western Europe has doubled in size. And there's other areas that are, we haven't even seen start to increase like plant-based fish and seafood, for example, those are still in their infancy. I think the annual sales of the both of them together is 10 million in the States, but um, for all plant-based meat, it's like 800 million there. And and that's important because, as I mentioned um, earlier, a majority of Canadians recognize the need to reduce meat consumption. And the good news is that although red meat, pork, and dairy consumption are down, chicken and fish are actually up. So there's a lot of positives for the fact that plant-based fish and seafood haven't really taken hold yet and are just growing now.
0: You know, um, (coughs) Camille said this in the Animal Justice Academy that uh, the, the kind of what you're saying right now is that, you know, chicken and fish have gone up. So the number of animals that are dying uh, are going up because we're eating smaller animals more now, which I don't I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing.
1: Yeah, it's well, for sh- the animals, it's for the animals, it's not such a great thing. And the overall I, number is going up.
0: I think of like the they have shorter lifespans, but then I don't I don't know how you measure suffering like that. That's why I say I don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing
1: yeah i hear that i mean uh i don't even like looking at silver lining when it comes to animal suffering but at least like if livestock by far um has the biggest environmental burden at least if there's a switch from red meat away from red meat and dairy that environmentally there's um a lot of benefits uh even though you know it doesn't really change much in terms of uh, the animal lives but there is this acknowledgement it's it's just As we talked about earlier with the nudge, it's crazy to me that that poll that said 70% of um, Canadians are interested in or at least acknowledge meat reduction uh, being important. It's something like 30 or 40% only actually think that they'll do anything about it. So those nudge strategies we talked about earlier will be a huge benefit if they get implemented. Um, You know, when we talked about students just naturally choosing the default plant based option. That's like, it it can be as simple as that, you know, you get the school cafeteria or the university cafeteria to change uh, to the plant-based status quo as a status quo, and then boom, you've got like a ton less animals being eaten there. And on the healthcare side, the economic, there was a study done that showed the economic burden of not meeting these new food recommendations, like this new food guide recommendations in Canada, is almost $14 a year. That, and that same study showed that just not eating enough fruits and vegetables alone in Canada is costing us just under $5 billion, which is kind of crazy.
0: Yeah, I I wonder how many people would even notice, you know, like if you had the lasagnas in in school cafeterias just subbing out beef for TVP or, or lentils or something like that, like how many people would actually even notice if you didn't tell them up front?
1: That's a great That's question. Some- do, you, do you guys ever do this where you try and like veganize your friends for a meal without telling them?
2: <laughs> um, yeah, I, I do it but i tell them because i can't I, do that <laughs>
1: i tell them after yeah. I, I brought mac and cheese for a potluck once and everybody loved it and then after like that was vegan
0: i'll do that with baked goods you know like i'll bring in baked goods and people don't put it together like hey if she's bringing baked goods that means that they're vegan so it's only afterwards i say you know that's that stuff is vegan that you ate but i don't do that with with savory dishes mm. I mean I don't go out there and say it but I think people just assume it. Oh there's this funny story so um uh my partner Fred uh he uh, he made this pate that was made out of like sweet potatoes and sunflower seeds and um he brought it uh, or he we had it at his family's gathering and his uncle is a chef and he was eating the pate and then he kept talking he kept telling one of everyone about how this pork pate was so good this pork pate and this guy's a chef and he could not tell it's like hold on do you realize who made that you know who made that put those pieces together you should know that this is vegan (laughs) because he knew that he knew that my partner had made it but um i don't know i thought that was uh yeah very funny yeah yeah
1: i love hearing those stories and that's that's actually probably the most exciting area i think about um the in terms of the rise of these plant-based markets that we were just talking about is um, that cultured meat, like lab grown meat, is projected to have massive growth. So well, just to back up for one second to like I think many people acknowledge that agriculture has been oversupported in Canada. So that's another big area of focus at plant-based economics is it's agriculture today is less than three percent of our GDP here. Like globally, it's around five to six percent of GDP, but in lower income countries, it's huge still. Like some countries in Africa, Sierra Leone, I think it's over half. It's um, definitely over half there. Even um, many level one and two countries uh, where income is still above $8 a day, it still counts for over 20% of their GDP. And as many listeners might appreciate, ag, like agriculture, and especially animal agriculture, has become increasingly industrial. So like the family farm, uh, old McDonald's stuff has totally become a myth. The number of farms has declined, but the size has shot up. So there's been this rise in the industrial animal agriculture complex. Like 75 years ago in Canada, there were over almost three-quarters of a million farms. Now there's under 200,000, but the average farm size has nearly doubled. And as many people are keenly aware in the vegan movement, the support structure for that has been very costly. So over the past 10 years in Canada, we spent almost $3 billion a year for dairy producer support estimates. And they're very effective lobbyists. It's really annoying. Like, there was a piece in the Hill Times a couple of years ago that showed I don't remember how many lobbyists, there's like 5,500 lobbyists, registered lobbyists in Canada or something at the time. Uh, and 11 of the top 100 were from animal agriculture. So the, the subsidies and the lobbying are definitely still in favor there. But the good news here is, per your point about Fred's unwitting or the story of, you know, sneakily. Preparing and providing delicious uh, plant-based versions of meals is that this cultured and lab-grown meat is still not even available in Canada, and is expected to have a huge growth, like over 16%, which is which is really big uh, later this decade. So I think between 2025 and 2020, 2030, it's really set to become the next big sector. And for anybody who watched last year's Veg Food Fest. We had a panel on this that was moderated by Toronto's own Liz Marshall, who made a, a movie called Meet the Future, by the way, which I highly recommend. So this is an area a lot of vegans don't appreciate because we're so um, focused on changing demand, which is which is totally fair and reasonable. And I encourage everybody to still do in their in, in their own right. But we often think like it's about winning over the hearts and minds of everybody and while that's definitely helpful, um, it's on the supply side that we're going to see the biggest disruptions to meet. And there's all sorts of positive signs on this. Like even just companies adopting animal welfare standards, which I understand many people don't like. Um, Leah Garces, who's the president of Mercy for Animals, got a lot of blowback for working with Tyson Foods because they're one of the largest chicken producers. But what happened was the CEO committed. To increasing, uh, improving animal welfare, so that, that came with standards and conditions. And I've heard I've heard many analogies before, like oh, so you just improve, you just want to improve death row for inmates. But what the reality is, that in- increases the cost. And if you increase the cost of chicken by a dollar, you know, per when people go out, they start to choose the plant-based option, and we're going to start to see a large growth in the lab-grown meat area. And I'm kind of really excited to see how that plays out because then you'll have many more meals, like you were just saying, where people like Fred are able to provide somebody who totally doesn't know that they're eating a plant-based option.
0: I, I'm so excited for the clean meat uh, for two reasons. One, because you know it's going to taste just like real meat, so that's going to make transitions easier. And then two, the thing that you were talking about, the cost effectiveness, because it doesn't seem like the um, the plant-based meat producers are working to get parity with uh, with meat costs but with um, with clean meat it seems like that's that's one of their goals like yes it's going to start off being a higher price than what meat is at but we're aiming to get two meat prices and then actually be able to undercut them and that's going to make people change so much and so we can attack this from so many different places we can attack it taste buds we can do it um, you know with people's ethics and you know with their wallet so we're getting into so many more options than we've had before and clean meat gives us that
1: yeah exactly and i love that i didn't know about Reimagine agriculture which i mentioned earlier here but that was pretty cool to me yesterday when i heard that they have a clean meat policy campaign which is literally just going around giving presentations to students in schools and around toronto right now i think in other areas of the country just to get them thinking about clean meat because it's coming. The the key question that um, keeps me up at night a little bit still for plant-based econ is how we transition out animal ag farmers to other sectors, whether in agriculture or entirely different areas altogether. And that is a tricky question.
0: But I think that's where the benefit comes, you know, that we're all talking to each other. And yes, I get it. We don't want to deal with Tyson Foods, but it's good that we're all talking to each other because that way we can come up with these solutions together and make sure that, you know, no one's left behind.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And the research has really moved me away from being a little bit, I used to be pretty militant. You can ask my family. And it's really um, made me appreciate all these, uh, the effectiveness of nudge strategies or, having these conversations and collaboration um, to get us all towards the goal that we really want, which is a reduction in the consumption of animals and their suffering.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Cause I I know that I am trying to think which book I read this in, but uh, Tyson Cargill, it was one of these big companies that were saying, you know, we don't, we don't want to do this. We don't want to kill animals, but this is our business, you know, so what are we supposed to do? Just not do our business. So once we start providing these alternatives, uh, we can we can all get along better.
1: Yeah. Actually the I can't remember his name off the top of my head right now, but at the time the Tyson CEO, when he was working with Leia Garcia, he actually said to her, his quote was something along the lines of, We're not in the chicken business, we're in the protein business. So if yes. you give us a good alternative, we'll go with that.
2: Yeah, I've I've heard that quote before. Yeah, it's okay it's been very interesting and i'm uh, just like blown away by the research that you're doing and the information that you're sharing and even just the the story about i don't remember her name working with Tyson Foods and how you can take what she did and look at it in one way and then actually what the actual effect of what she's doing is raising the prices which then will kind of put them out of business in a very kind of little sneaky way but that's i i don't know if that's the goal but you know just doing this type of research and sharing it with us has really shown that there's lots of different ways to look at things, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And we all want the same thing, right? We all everybody kind of agrees on activism that it takes many different strokes. Uh, I think the more people appreciate how things change on the like larger scale and on a policy scale, then the more on the more open they are to these different approaches because I used to be somebody who would protest with the, you know, and animal agriculture subsidy signs? But then I worked in policy and saw that even if they want to change, they need to see the options. So if you come to them saying, hey, you know, this mushroom um, producer subsidy you had, or here's how you can get cheaper fruits and vegetables, then you'll, you'll definitely get an ear there from somebody who otherwise might have just turned away from you. You said, oh, just stop doing this. And so back to Sweta's point about the collaboration is actually pretty heartwarming, to be honest. Like we see a lot of animosity between the vegan and non vegan communities, but it's, it's, it's actually um, blown up a lot more than it actually, than it exists from what I've seen. There's a lot of people willing to chat and meet middle ground and everybody kind of acknowledges now the absolute devastation of meat production. Even if we don't have, you know, we're not able to see eye to eye on, um, the moral arguments.
2: Absolutely. Too busy doing their business. They don't know the alternative or they can't, they don't have time to think about an alternative really. Right. And that's yeah. what, that's where our role is to come in and say, here are some alternatives and help yeah. them achieve them. And then they have the resources to come
0: in and make it happen. Mm-hmm.
1: Leia Garcia made a great point too. In that conversation I heard her with St. Talking about, she never appreciated just how many farmers are actually suffering out there themselves like and don't want to be in the business they're in but when you're 21 years old and you take out a huge loan to build a 20,000 foot structure for chickens and you're not even the owner of those chickens you're like effectively renting them instead and obviously based on the you know industrial process of feeding them the antibiotics and a a bunch of them get sick and die there's terrible suffering they fall behind and then by the time they know it they won't want to get out, but they're debt strapped and they're caught between a rock and a hard place. So there is, there, as much as we want to vilify animal agricultural farmers all the time, there are a ton of them who actually would love to get out if they could.
0: John Oliver actually did a piece on that about the chicken farmers, exactly what you're saying about the money that they have to pour in and they get stuck in these situations and how they're victims of all of this as well. And I'll put a, a link to that in the show notes.
1: Great. I watched that one. That, that was a great upset. On the plant-based data front, uh, there's a huge rise. You guys have seen probably with eco beef and with like uh, regenerative animal agriculture and how that's like the savior, like holistic grazing and all this. And uh, Nick Carter, who I work with through plant-based data, he's done such a good job of basically debunking all of that stuff. And and so if anybody's interested, we could do like a short shout out there. They, they should follow Nick because. Um, they can really arm themselves with all the most up-to-date information on why we can't—we just can't continue eating animals at the rate we're eating, no matter what model we use, even if it is this new wave of regen ag and eco-beef.
0: We'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. Thank you so much for spending time today with us, Nizal. Uh, it was a great talk, very informative, and you were very impressive. Thank yes. you.
1: I appreciate it. It was a pleasure to join you guys, finally.
0: Okay, so let's look at some updates from the TVA. We have a $10 cook-along with Sam Turnbull. She'll be showing you how to make loaded queso dip from her new book, Fast, Easy, Cheap Vegan on Zoom. This is happening on March 30th at 6.30 and the link to register is up on the homepage at veg.ca. We'll also post a link in the show notes. Another thing that's happening is the Toronto Veg Fitness Group is now doing weekly online HIIT workouts. So if you are sick of sitting at your computer and if you wanna get up and work out, then do join them with that. We also have the online lunch club going and we'll have a link to that in the show notes as well so please do join us for that you've been listening to veg out the toronto vegetarian podcast brought to you by the toronto vegetarian association find out everything you need to know about what we do at veg.ca and thanks to matt judge for our theme song until next time veg
1: Out.